All right. Wait, wait. If Scott's not going to be here when we um when we end, uh, who's going to lend the blind? I think the well, authority goes down to the dean. Gray. Obviously, no, no, Gray. Obviously, <laughs> to, to the dean. I was going to say the dean, who's the boss as well. Yeah, Tommy can land the plane. I think the preacher should land the plane. Like, okay. <laughs> we, let's just bump this around. I'll land it. Excellent. <laughs> okay. And uh, yeah. Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of the 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm a professor of Old Testament and president here at RTS-DC. I'm joined by our academic dean and professor of New Testament, Tommy Keene, our professor of systematic theology, Grace Utanto, an instructor in New Testament and senior pastor, at New City Presbyterian Church here in the D.C. area, Dr. Paul Jean. And we're going to continue on now, after a little bit of a hiatus, we're going to continue on in our study of the Ten Commandments. And so we're coming in now on the Sixth Commandment, the shortest of the commandments, thou shalt not murder, as the King James puts it. And actually does remind me of something that I don't know if we've commented on before, but you know, in Hebrew, you can give negative commands in a variety of ways. You can, you know, say, don't do something like don't put your hand on the stove or something like that, you know, where you're talking about an immediate situation. You're talking about an immediate speech situation. You're saying, don't do it. You know, don't put your hand on the stove. Don't don't touch the AC unit as parents or fathers rather around the world are saying here in the fall. But you know, this is interesting about the Ten Commandments is that they actually use a different construction, and it's a construction that's used to talk about not doing things beyond the immediate speech situation. In other words, these are these are rules for all time, which we all kind of intuit, and the King James communicates to you in that old English uh, format of shout, thou shalt. Notice that's that's not about something that's kind of immediate, but it's beyond the immediate speech situation. And the same is true here of the Ten Commandments. It's said in a different kind of Hebrew that we don't really distinguish now so much. But this is, of course, a rule not just for one time. This is for all time. And it's acknowledging that humans have dignity, that humans are made in the image of God, though it doesn't cite that passage in Genesis. Uh, but highlighting that this is something about the biblical faith, that humans are not merely means or some uh, kind of disposable a commodity, but that humans should be treated with dignity, and therefore their lives should not be taken unjustly. So we're starting off with that commandment. So why is it now, kind of tracking where we are in the, in the Ten Commandments, we've, we've gone through how we ought to think about God, we've now talked about uh, authority relationships and the centrality of the family, and now we move on to this ruling about uh, the dignity of human life. Tommy Keene, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, why why this commandment about murder? Why here? Why now? What's the import of this for the Christian today? I mean, I feel like we're done here. I mean, thou shalt not murder. I, I, 
I, uh, it's pretty clear to me. I don't think there's some interpretive hermeneutical issues to discuss. All right, guys, I've loved this conversation. It's been great to talk to you. Uh, we we got to say more. We've got to say more. There's got to be some implications. This is okay. It all serious. This is one of those spots where I my head goes to the larger catechism as kind of the great exposition of the commandment. I know that's kind of Gray's job because because he's the ST guy, so he's supposed to bring up the, the 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 catechisms. But my head goes to the catechism, and it's and I was just looking at it because I had a suspicion that you'd call on me, Scott. So I, I was just looking at it. And, you know, it's, it's really like, like the first thing, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? The duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies to preserve the life of ourselves and others. And, and you've got, like, it goes on, like subduing our passions. It talks about defending others against violence. It talks about like how, what you eat, but don't be, be moderate in the use of meat and drink. Uh, exercise, labor, you know, like there's a lot here um, embedded in the the commandment to not take life. And the logic seems to be the desire to flourish personally and also the desire to assist others in flourishing in, in their lives. It's not just persisting in, in, in life, but growing, maturing, flourishing, flowering, all those kinds of things. And, and not just me, also my neighbor. Yeah, that's interesting. Particularly in light of, you know, the way that blessings and cursings are used in the Old Testament. You know, I remember my, my professor, Mark Furtado, a future guest on this podcast, he, you know, he defines, as many have to, uh, before him, he defines blessing as a word unto life, right? And a curse as a word unto death. And that this, this commandment about not murdering, not killing, uh, is highlighting the fact that it's not just, as you say, about persistence of life. It's not just about keeping alive no matter what, because there's some kind of magic in the reality of life or something, but actually about having a full life, you know, encouraging flourishing, encouraging and, and adding to and contributing to wholeness in the world around you, a culture of life, not merely a culture of death. Well, you mentioned that this is the shortest commandment, and then we have a pretty extensive, wide-ranging application thereof in the in the standards. And it makes me—I don't think we've talked about this yet, but just the hermeneutical methodology of systematic theology ethics here of taking the commandment, separating it out into positive and negative. You know, you mentioned it, it's a—it's a prohibition. It's worded as a kind of single prohibition. Where do we get, okay, so I need to be, you know, I need to exercise from this, from this prohibition of murder. Like, her, I, I think about that both hermeneutically, but then also uh, the pastoral kind of implications of that. How do I track these things out even into, you know, 500 years into the future of, from the, from the catechism's perspective and thinking about genetically modified foods and you know, all of the kind of buzz issues that are in our culture like what where do we apply these things in modern society so so what i hear you saying is is if we only had an ethicist a theologian and a pastor on yeah. this call we could really explore the depth 
of a commandment like like this one. Yeah, I think that'd be very useful. If only. Right. Since since we're lacking, I will try to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I love everything you guys shared. Uh, I do at the same time, I'm thinking about how Jesus uh, connected it explicitly to anger, and. Um, just uh, is it so isn't it so obvious that they like people are just angry you know and i'm not saying that there isn't reason to be angry right but you know we can apply this uh commandment in very sophisticated ways but just coming at this as a pastor like uh i think it helps us to see that murder i think the letter of james talks about this is usually the outworking you know of like anger that's left unaddressed and um yeah, and David Powelson, he put it like this. He said, you know, the way most uh, sophisticated and um, respectable Christians, the way that they murder is just by basically giving people the silent treatment or cutting them off, right? And um, I, I just think it's like interesting that while people, while many Christians are trying to address like these broader issues, right? Uh, they're not addressing the anger within them, you know? And so when this commandment says, do not murder, right? Instead of glossing over it, because we think, okay, most of us are not gonna murder, right? But I do think that it's worthwhile to explore the anger um, where, you know, that that can lead to violence, at least within our minds. You know, as a pastor, it's really interesting to hear people share and confess their sins. And one of the common um, confessions that do arise is, uh, like how people do have actually very murderous thoughts. Like, you know, they, they kill people in their minds. Like, I wish that person were dead and they actually kill them in their mind, right? And I think this command addresses that as well. So as much as I do want to see the broader implications of this, especially as it re relates to abortion, actually, I know that's a hot topic, but on the basic level and at the risk of being too individualistic, I do think we should explore how this command uh, tells us to address our anger. Yeah, and I think, one of the things that, that's been brochured through what Tommy said and what you said, Paul, is that we have to read these commandments in light of the broader teachings of the rest of redemptive history, and also especially the way in which Jesus used these commandments and reinterpreted these commandments. I think he was very sensitive to the fact that as sinful human beings, we want to take the bare minimum of what's required in the commandments and say, hey, turns out I passed the bar. I've never murdered anyone. And then Jesus says, if you hated anyone, that means that you've actually failed at this commandment. You've actually committed murder in your own heart. So it, it, it seems that when we take a look at, at the essence of what Jesus was doing there is that anything that might lead to murder is actually a violation of murder itself. And hence, when he summarizes it further and he says that it is the summary of the commandments that you love your neighbor as yourself, that the positive is always also implied there not just the bare minimum of not actually physically harming your neighbor, but also actually preserving their lives and wanting to make sure that you see them flourish as much as you see yourself flourish. Mm. And, and that kind of hermeneutic doesn't let us off the hook in terms of what we have actually accomplished and, and what we've actually failed. Oh, great. Not just the systematician, but the, but the biblical scholar. <laughs> He's the total package. He's the total package. He is. Honestly, the whole the whole time I was just like, you guys have said everything that's good. How do I add to this? It's really, really difficult. So I was just trying to pick up something. But hey, take humble it away. too. Humble amidst oh, wow. everything else. Hey, okay. well, 
one of the things I, I Paul, to your point, and uh, you know, I, I think about the ways I try to get around this commandment and this, you know, in in kind of the basic run of social relationships, right? We're all kind of trying to make this easier to manage because when you start talking about, you know, th- thinking those dark thoughts as a violation of the sixth commandment, that seems extreme. One thing I, but 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 obviously is what Jesus is calling us to consider. And one of the things that I have heard a lot, and I get I get this, uh, is that the phrase "I have to love the person, I don't have to like them." Uh, and I get I get what's going on there. I I understand, but actually, if you know if what Gray said is right, if if the catechism's got it right, like I have to seek out ways for that person to flourish and to to enjoy their relationships, their life, their, the things that God has given them to, to abundance. And that requires me to actually cultivate happy thoughts about them, you know, that to, to like bits of who they are. Um, and so I, I wonder if embedded in this command too, is just the structure of social friendship. Um, not everybody's going to be your best friend. I, I'm not saying that you're not going to like everything about a person, but when I'm, it's not enough again for me just to not hate, not murder someone in my heart, not be angry. I actually need to cultivate my delight in other people. Yeah, that's great. That that hermeneutic, Gray, that you just introduced, and Tommy, you kind of unpacked of like not of not just thinking, okay, what does this literally say not to do the negative, but also what is it encouraging by implication? These are grand rules for all of life and so they they're they're in a way kind of like hyperlinks to whole you know whole aspects of life and whole aspects of behavior beyond just what they say and you know it it brings to mind so many passages in scripture where this kind of thing is being addressed you know I, the, the one that comes to mind right away is in proverbs 6 you know the seven things that the lord hates you know and what are they they all have to do with this kind of violent disposition or desire for violence and maybe even like a powering over you know a a, a desire for abuse and oppression a proud look hands that shed innocent blood heart that devise uh, evil a wicked imaginations feet that run to calamity and we might think well that sounds you know that's putting a little too fine a point on it isn't it that's a little on the nose but then if you think about you know if I read a passage like that, or if I even read Jesus applying this and saying anyone who says you fool is commu- committing the same crime, I think, well, you know, man, this kind of, you know, has Jesus ever driven in Washington, D.C. traffic? Because uh, that, that's where that temptation arises for me, you know, or or has, you know, he been on social media? Because you can tell, I mean, there are people who, and I think you know, social media is one of those places, but it's not just there where you can see that there is an inclination in the human heart toward destruction, right? There's an inclination towards, it, it, it might be polite, it might be even, it might even have a kind of etiquette in it, but people who are looking for the fight, you know, they go into a situation and they're looking for a fight, they're looking for calamity, they're looking for destruction and violence, and that might be emotional or relational, it doesn't have to be physical, sometimes it is that too. And I realize actually this is this is a quite, you know, this is a quite countercultural and challenging and far-reaching commandment in that regard. You know, are you seeking the betterment, the benefit, the growth, the flourishing of those around you? 
or do you do you find yourself kind of drawn to the fights you know and you cloak it in righteous language of you know speaking the truth to power maybe or standing up for what's right or what's true and what it actually righteous is. indignation yeah righteous indignation or righteous anger and what it actually is and this is the hard part of this is the why we need the spirit to be involved in this work because it's hard for us to discern the difference but the hard part is saying you know wait a minute this isn't righteous indignation this is this isn't righteous outrage this is someone looking for a fight well and i, I think maybe it's important to kind of pause and talk about social media for a while because we think about it as this sort of neutral thing but of course studies are coming out that you know social media doesn't increase human happiness it makes everybody more upset more angry it kind of feeds to our, our negative emotions and i'm not saying we should therefore exclude it but it's a reminder to us you know what that we need to be involved in things that promote uh, you know, human flourishing to use that, I think, overused phrase, but it's a good phrase, right? So to, to promote life, to, pr to, pr to promote growth and maturity and fruitfulness and all these kinds of things. And that is as important, if not more important, in how we use our words on social media. And, and James 3 is a, is a great reminder to me about that. You know, it's a very negative passage. James has nothing good to say about the tongue. He doesn't say, redeem the tongue. He doesn't say you need to to save your tongue or, or 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 use it wisely. He just says it is a restless evil, a deadly fire, a poison that will poison the whole well. That's it. You know, there's almost no redeeming value to it, and and that causes me to then reconsider if if everything that I say is laced with just that little touch of poison, just a little arsenic uh, here and there, then. I need to be extremely cautious. I need to rest in Christ and the words of Christ and really cultivate the wisdom of Christ before I say anything, whether it's online or in person. Yeah, that's yeah. A great. Like, Tommy, like along those lines, um, I think there are also studies that show that, you know, and the book of Proverbs talks about this as well. Um, you know, just venting, letting your anger out actually does not reduce anger, uh, but it actually feeds into it. And that's why, again, like being a believer is so countercultural and counterintuitive because, you know, the instructions of Jesus and the Bible are bless your enemy, pray for them, right? So if we are going to speak, if we are going to use our tongue, it says to do something that's so unnatural. And, you know, just as an aside, this is why, you know, I talk about this a lot just um, throughout ministry, uh, both to our seminary students and to my like church members that even for the believer, there isn't, there's so much of it that's unnatural, you know? And so, so this argument that our ethics, our decisions need to be consistent with our natural desires, that doesn't really have so much weight, you know? And that's what it means to be like redeemed in Jesus, going against our natural sinful nature. Um, but yeah, I love what you said about the tongue and how um, the Bible teaches us to do otherwise as we seek to tame anger. Well, it's interesting. These studies are coming out now and we're even seeing that this is supported by the, the market research being done by a lot of these companies of how much easier it is to change someone's or to increase someone's passion around a topic negatively than it is to increase it positively, you know, or it's easier to get people to act than to do something like buy a product or click on a link 
if it's anger that's their motivation than if it's if it's peacefulness and joy right and I, and I think that's a good example of you know it's a good example of you know your, your human your general revelation is confirming the teaching of scripture there right that we actually have an inclination in this way this is if you kind of leave humans to their own designs there will be a natural inclination towards destruction and not towards building up no, interestingly, Scott, I mean, a connection to your comment there about how anger actually drives us toward action better. It's also connected to the fact that we get more dopamine hits by seeing yeah. failure and also seeing people actually get pain and suffering. So uh, there, there's a reason why social media actually creates and nurtures a sort of outrage culture. There wasn't a kind of nurturing of that prior to the rise of social media i think maybe in the past there's kind of instances of public shaming here and there kind of a, a mob sort of vision in particular events in history but social media has made it sort of an addiction that there's this outrage culture that is something that is actually fueling our dopamine hits and without it we feel that life is actually quite uh feelingless and passionless so it, it's connected to the claim again scott you mentioned this too about scripture calling us out as fallen human beings, we don't actually want to see other people flourish. We want to see other people suffer. And it's ironic because we actually depend on people's flourishing for us to flourish because we always live in relationship with one another. And on that note, maybe we could like talk a little bit about some of these. I mean, I know these are controversial topics, but the social justice issues, you know, going back to the catechism, it requires me to take actions that ensure the just defense of anyone against violence in the pause in the in the what does it forbid section it, it it forbids provoking words oppression quarreling striking wounding or whatsoever tends to the destruction of the life of any you know so there's this social concern here that and again both positive and negative that i need to resist i need to be involved in resisting the uh, oppression and promoting the ability to flourish of anybody that I meet, of, of you know, who is my neighbor, everybody's my neighbor. Uh, and so I'm, I'm called to this task. Uh, and I know that gets complicated, but it is embedded here in the moral law. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting aspect of this commandment is that, let's kind of back up a little bit. You know, I think about all the young people who come through the seminary doors you know, to take classes or the fellows who are involved in our program. And there's often the question of like, well, what, what should I do? You know, how, how do I glorify God in the place where I, you know, I've got a job that really doesn't have any clear justice aspect to it or something like that. And one of the things you realize when you kind of look at a commandment like this is that it's, it's, it's quite challenging. It seems at first like it's a low bar. Don't do evil. Don't go kill people. Don't, be, don't, don't encourage a culture of oppression and abuse. But that's actually pretty hard and pretty, pretty amazing, kind of life-giving. If you, wherever you are, can promote the flourishing of others, if you can recognize on your point about justice, you know, justice in scripture, some people will say, well, justice in scripture is that we all should die because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's, that's true in the kind of divine holiness aspect of justice. But there's another aspect of justice, which is kind of a public righteousness. And what does it what does it call us to do? It calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Therefore, to recognize that a just situation arises when you are disadvantaging yourself to the advantage of those around you. That's what public justice looks like. And so, when you see that not happening, and that can not happen on in, in very local ways, you know, kind of in a just immediate situation. One of my 
one of my daughters came home from school the other day and there was a, a dust up in her class about uh, someone who was getting kind of bullied, I guess. And, and it, it's kind of a local situation, you know, that needs to be handled. But then there's also, of course, much larger public and even societal level or, or systematic levels of oppression, too, that have to be resisted and pushed against because we are called to disadvantage ourselves to the advantage of others. And that that's a, that's a grand Old Testament idea that I think we find rooted in passages like this one. But also it's one that Paul says is the, is the mindset of Christ, that we're to have ourselves, that we empty ourselves and we, we disadvantage ourselves so that we might see those who, even while they're still sinning, that's the thing. It's not even like they have to be good people in order to deserve this kind of justice. But we are called to, to go and to lift up and to you know, bring about a kind of wholeness in the, in the, in the lives of the people around us. And that that's radical. That's a kind of radical life-giving disposition that I don't care if you're a janitor or the president of the United States, that changes everything. Would you say that there's like a wholeness imperative? You know, I, you know, I, I don't use that language, Tommy, but I'll gladly appropriate it from you. I mean, I, you know, absolutely. No, I mean, this is something you, you definitely see in Deuteronomy 6 as well. You know, this call that every aspect of your life is to be devoted to the love of the Lord. And we want to encourage that and magnify that you know, beyond our own selves to the people around us. If you haven't read the book, guys, go ahead and read Scott Red's Wholeness Imperative. It's available on Amazon, probably cheaper on WTS Books. If you can find it at christianbooks.com or Barnes & Noble, maybe uh, there's other discounts there that I do not know about, but uh, it's available all bookstores. Said like a, a true author who has shilled for books before. Well done. I, I, I do like that you just you just got finished saying we disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage others. And then this launched us into a five-minute promotion of your book by accident. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> the outworking of everything we said is interesting. Like, uh, it, it's complicated. And uh, one of the things I talk about with my boys is, like, in general, if uh, someone is bullying you, you shouldn't, like, revert to violence, you know, in general. But I also have said to them, if you see someone that's, smaller and getting bullied and you're just on the side and you don't do anything right i told them i would take issue with that i've been very clear about that with my boys right and then they'll ask me what if we get suspended and i always tell them i'm okay with that i'm totally okay with that because i think from a young age it's not that you're trying to instill some sort of messiah complex but you know this whole thing about preserving life or protecting the poor or, or the marginalized. I think that is important. And so uh, it was interesting because last night we had some church members over and we were talking about that as, as well. Like, you know, obviously as believers, we are seekers of peace, but what that means is um, it's not always as clear as we would want it to be. And so they were discussing a bullying situation and they asked my, my two cents on it. And my own view is not, obviously not, that we should never use violence. It's important to remember that there is a kind of oppression that can happen when someone stands back and does nothing, right? And that that is also a way of protecting your own position. And it can even be quite reasonable, 
to do so. It's protecting your status quo because maybe you've been oppressed. Maybe you've been bullied before and you don't want to draw you know, the red eye of Sauron on you. And yet at the same time, you know, there is a, there's a kind of, there's a kind of offense that happens when you stand back and don't do anything while other people are being oppressed. Of course, there's a lot of cultural examples that we can point to about things like that happening. I think what's an important takeaway from what Paul just said and what you just said, Scott, is that it's, it's important to keep in mind the sort of localized application of these big sweeping commandments like do not murder and love your neighbor. It sounds incredibly overwhelming when you take it in that generic big sense, but when you start to localize it and you think about what are some opportunities to preserve life with the sort of environment around myself, it becomes a little bit more realistic and manageable and actually more tangible in terms of how you could apply it. Um, in terms of scholarship even, I've got a running conversation with a few friends about how as we get older as scholars and as we see the older scholars around us, we either develop or develop into a Palpatine or a Jedi. And I think uh, the distinction between the Palpatine and the Jedi is really rooted in a particular understanding of this commandment. You're either a Palpatine where you see yourself now as the older scholar and you're the senior scholar and you see the younger folks as kind of your competitors and you see your students as sort of your little militia to defend you and to take down the other school of thought there and you want to make sure that you even maybe inhibit publishing opportunities career opportunities for the other group or you could be a jedi and you can say my task here is just to lead others to the truth and i'm not seeing this as my own little sphere of land for me to protect but rather i want to see other people flourish and i'm going to use my position i'm going to use my scholarship to point to perhaps even the younger authors or others around me if i can be helpful to them in getting at the truth and in getting uh, ahead in their work. So even in that sort of life-giving task of being that sort of senior scholar, he's really applying the principle that is outlined here in terms of the Westminster Larger Catechism's reading of this particular commandment. So again, it's very intimidating if it's just about don't kill people and love people, but be concrete about it and be specific about your own calling and task. And, and it becomes incredibly tangible really quickly. That's you just opened a whole can of worms. That I realized I, I I've got this whole spreadsheet in my mind with those two categories of scholars that I've known, and there's there there's Palpatines and there's Jedi. That's a great way of, of defining it. I think that also is something that can happen in the church with pastors. You know, pastors can come into a position where maybe even more so because you are having this daily this kind of daily engagement with whether or not you're accepted and celebrated by your congregation, that it, it can start to seem like a zero sum game that if someone else gets praised, then that's taking away from my position or my authority or my place, you know, and I've seen that happen there too. That's a, that's a great, that's a great, uh, you know, reflection, Gray. Yeah, great. You just continue to impress, but that analogy, that analogy <laughs> and now it's all really, gone. And now it's all it's gone. really it's great. Uh, you know, you and then Scott, the way you just applied it, like you see this all the time, especially among like celebrity pastors. And you know, um, I think this is something we have to be very aware of, like how um, I, I personally think this is such a growing trend, uh, like where and you know i'm intentionally vague in speaking generalities and so i could be faulted for that but there you know with these recent issues with social justice and all that 
I think it's interesting to see people speak about it versus people actually doing things about it. And um, wondering like really what the motivation is like. And I do think that the desire to become like um, a figure that has many followers and then to silence you know, those that oppose. I think that's actually a very real issue. You know, and I think we talked about this a while back, but there's this tendency now just to silence the other group, right? But no, great, I think what you said, that's really worth thinking through, uh, especially even as we have certain figures that we ourselves are drawn to and wondering if we are contributing to that uh, by not being thoughtful about the whole phenomenon. I don't know if any of that made sense, but yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about like this, the silencing aspect and then Gray also kind of the local aspect, because, you know, when I think about promoting justice and promoting human flourishing at a systemic level, it just seems impossible. But maybe it doesn't start there. It doesn't start with, uh, you know, the the kind of the big comprehensive solutions, but do I know my mailman? Do I tip well? The, you know, all of these kinds of things are, are actually very tangible and in some respects kind of costly. Do, do I let someone else criticize me and just let it stand, just let it ride in, in order to not silence another voice? You know, th those are tangible and often costly ways in which we're applying these kinds of commands. Yeah, and as actually applying, you know, affect theory and, and what we've been talking about is really fruitful because if you know that your body is inclined toward the perception of failure, and if you know that your body is inclined towards seeing people suffer and so on, and that really is something that could give you a sort of addiction and adrenaline rush and gives you pleasure, if, you, if you're aware of that about yourself and you know that social media actually feeds on that and nurtures that, then maybe loving your neighbor could look like knowing your limits with social media and repenting from feeding into that sort of addiction and turning away from your phone and also focusing on other ways in which you can feel nourished, you can feel serotonin, you can feel that dopamine without actually turning to these other ways that your body's inclining you towards, right? And that that takes a lot of hard work. That takes a lot of, it takes a lot of strength. Honestly, I've been talking a lot about this with my wife in terms of in dinner time. Let's not take a look at our phones. Let's not listen to YouTube. Let's not listen to a podcast because maybe it's so easy for us to just start to keep on feeding this sort of sense that we need to keep being in tune with the latest news, in tune with the latest material, especially the kinds that 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 involves other people's suffering and other people's pain and other people's failures. And I think saying no to that is really hard work and supplying this commandment. Brothers, this has been an excellent conversation. Have really enjoyed uh, it and uh, the discussion that we've that we've gotten to have. I'm. Uh, it is my duty to land this plane because our beloved president is off to uh, ETS and to engage in the scholarly and academic world. Uh, and so we wish him happy travels. Uh, please do like and subscribe. You can find more great content here uh, on the faculty podcast, including Gray Sutanto talking about affect theory last week. So if that gets you jazzed up, 
then this is the kind of uh, podcast you want to describe to. And join us uh, next week as well as we continue uh, our conversation. Thanks, as always, to Timo Sazo, who makes us sound brilliant and better. And uh, please do share the podcast with those around you, your friends, your family. Tell them about it. We'd love to uh, be able to continue these conversations with ever wider partners of conversations. was awful that was so bad i loved it i thought I it was pretty it was strong <laughs> yeah. it's it's it's, it's entertaining yeah, it's jazzed up i love that jazzed up mm-hmm. it, that your your uh landing of the plane got me jazzed up tommy so you know what i've never in pastoral ministry preaching t- twice a week for for 10 years i still never figured out how to land the plane yeah, you make them cry and then you say, "Let's pray." <laughs> you just let you, hey, just let's pray. I mean, and you can't let's do pray. that on a podcast, right? Because that's weird. No. Um, I thought that was fine. What do you think, Timo? Yeah. The one thing you didn't say was "see you next week" or "take care." You know, like the last two words. So, take care and see you next week. Boom.